Silas Mana episode four featuring Katie Mosley. Hi, I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. <laughs> Good. Is that what you're doing? That's what do? I say, yeah. yeah. <laughs> do, do an American accent, do Lauren. What's her last name? Burke. Hey, I'm your host, Lauren Burke. <laughs> Whatever I do, I'm like, hey, I'm Lauren Burke. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, my name's Lauren Burke, and I'm here today. <laughs> Welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I'm your host, Lauren Burke. And I'm your host, Hannah Chapman. And I am pleased to say that we have made it, folks. This is our last episode in our Silas Marner read-along, and um, probably the only George Eliot read-along we'll ever do, unless... Hannah, has this like, you know, all tempted you to reconsider your stance on us reading Middlemarch? Because, you know, I think I am emotionally ready right no, now. I will never, I will never read Middlemarch as a read along. No. Oh, man. Oh, man. Maybe if I, if I ever get like a really healthy redundancy package from a job, mm. that could be the time that I have the, uh, the capacity to, to do, do it. it. Okay. Yeah. All that right. Just, it just well, seems like such a job. I'm down for it actually but it's not gonna happen it's not gonna happen so just <laughs> don't get your hopes up let's just go ahead and crack open these silas martyr notes so it's probably time that we caught up with the cast household right mm. and lucky for us chapter 17 does just that now straight off the bat we learn that nancy and godfrey have married for have been married for 15 years and she's had a positive impact on the red house her sister Priscilla still lives at home and has taken over the management of the family farm and care of their father. Nancy and Priscilla go for a walk around the garden and they discuss business and an exchange of land between Godfrey and their cousin with the intent of taking on a dairy herd. So Godfrey is expanding his empire. Mm-hmm. Making business decisions. Making business decisions happen. And he can do that through the power of his advantageous marriage. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's what it's all about. It's not all domestic bliss at the Red House. It turns out that Nancy is content with what she has with Godfrey, but he wants a child. Oh, no. Saw that coming, right? <laughs> Priscilla is unimpressed. The way that men are always wanting and wanting and never easy with what they've got. That's yes. what she says. That's it was a good uh, that was a good discussion. Mm-hmm. She unwittingly has hit the nail right on the head with Godfrey. Later in the chapter, we learn that Godfrey and Nancy did have a baby, but it died very young. Yet sweet Nancy might have been expected to feel still more keenly the denial of a blessing to which she had looked forward with all the varied expectations and preparations, solemn and prettily trivial, which fill the mind of a loving woman when she expects to become a mother. Was there not a drawer filled with the neat work of her hands, all unworn and untouched, just as she had arranged it there 14 years ago, just but for one little dress, which had been made the burial dress? But under this immediate personal trial, Nancy was so firmly unmurmuring that years ago she had suddenly renounced the habit of visiting this drawer, lest she should in this way be cherishing a longing for what was not given. Nancy imagines it must be harder for a man to be disappointed in this way because a woman can always be satisfied with devoting herself to her husband. <laughs> I mean, this is where Nancy lost me, so right? Funny. Like, <laughs> I this chapter I went Nancy who are you like I it's been what's going years. on Nancy I mean really it has been she's one of those people that gets like more conservative with age that's like mm -hmm. the sense I'm getting from Nancy yes uh so Nancy turns the years over in her mind weighing every decision she has ever made since they married including her insistence six years ago that they not adopt she believed that adopting was going against God and that it would never turn out well. Godfrey, 
had, of course, used his own secret child as an example of this not being the case, pointing out that Epi had turned out well in the care of Silas Marner. He also suggested multiple times that they adopt Epi themselves as far back as 12 years ago, the thought never occurring to him that Silas or even Epi might say no. Surely the weaver would wish the best to the child he had taken so much trouble with and would be glad that such good fortune should happen to her. She would always be very grateful to him and he would be well provided for to the end of his life, provided for as the excellent part he had done by the child deserved. Was it not an appropriate thing for people in a higher station to take a charge off the hands of a man in a lower But this want of a child seems to be the only thing that has or will, if Nancy has anything to do with it, come between them. She comforts herself with the knowledge that had he married a woman who had given him six children, she'd have vexed him in other ways. It's actually like a healthy way of looking at it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I totally thought she was she was right. No marriage is perfect, right? There's Mm -hmm. always going to be something that's a little bit off. She's like a realist in this way. By the way, it hasn't occurred to Godfrey that telling Nancy Epi is his child is any kind of option. It's hard to move on, though, because in a way he saw adopting Epi as a way of sort of appeasing his own guilt. Yeah, which he can't ever admit to anyone because no one knows Mm -hmm. that Epi is his child. Just got to hold on to it. Yeah, just keeps it in his in his heart. He's all about secrets is Godfrey. Even Mm -hmm. when the secrets are gone, he's like... Oh, here's a new one. Here's a new one. <laughs> so chapter 18 has an explosive start with Godfrey returning from his Sunday walk with the news that Duncy has been found, or rather, his remains have been found. When mm. they drained the stone pit, they found a skeleton wedged between two rocks with Duncy's watch, seals, and Godfrey's gold-handled whip. The other thing they found was Silas Marner's gold, confirming that he fell in and didn't die by suicide. The shock of it all prompts Godfrey to come out and say it, the very thing that's plagued their marriage for 15 years. Epi is his child. Mm -hmm. Nancy is silent for a while, but eventually says to him that if he had just told her the truth, then they could have adopted Epi and she wouldn't have stood in his way. She goes on to add that had he told her from the very first, they could have raised her together and Epi would have loved her as a mother and that Mm -hmm. losing their own baby would have been easier to bear. Their life would have been more like the life they imagined it would be together. And I think understandably Nancy begins to cry. Yeah. Nancy's reaction to this news does really surprise me because I wasn't after the whole bit about not adopting. Mm Mm-hmm. I think it's just like Nancy is someone who can change her mind or like adapt when she's given the context and the information, which a lot of the men in this book are not able to do. (laughs) Godfrey insists that had he told her the truth, they would never have been married because of her pride. And Nancy tells him that she wasn't worth doing wrong for and that it was another woman he did wrong by. Molly. And doubts that he will ever make up for it. So not only is she like... You can't put this on me, but also, you know, your other wife, like that, you treat her really badly. Yep. And also that, like, I mean, we'll circle back around to this, but this conversation was so good. Um, Godfrey obviously is projecting, but also I think mm-hmm. she kind of alludes, she says something along the lines of like, you took away my choice for mm-hmm. my my life. That's like, that was my decision to make. It was not you. Yeah. 100%. So they do agree that at the very least, Godfrey should now own to being Epi's father and do his best by her. And Nancy, in turn, will do her best by her too. And uh, we can all agree that Godfrey does not deserve Nancy Lamenter, even after 15 years. Definitely does not. (laughs) Um, In chapter 19, we find Epi and Silas alone at the cottage in the wake of the great discovery Even Aaron and Dolly have been sent away. Near them, lit by a candle, is the old, long-loved gold. Back to having dinner with your gold. (laughs) Pull up a seat. (laughs) Yeah, come on. Welcome home. 
They discuss what the gold or rather the loss of it meant for both of them. Silas tells Epi that she is what got him through the dark days after it was stolen. And she tells him that if he hadn't taken her in, she'd have been sent to the workhouse where nobody would have loved her. But Mm. he insists that the blessing was, you know, was all his. He feels as if the gold has been kept safe all this time until Epi was ready to have it. Which is such There's, a nice way for him to now relate to the gold because it had no purpose totally. before. When he was saving it, he wasn't saving it with a goal in mind. There's a knock at the door and in come Mr. and Mrs. Cass. Godfrey starts off by saying how comforted he is that the gold has been returned to Silas. And as it was his brother that stole it, he feels bound to make it up to him. Silas insists that Godfrey has already been good enough to him and he isn't answerable for his brother's crime. Godfrey points out, though, that the gold recovered is a start, but not quite enough for Silas and Epi to get by on. And eventually, he drops the bomb that maybe he and Nancy should adopt Epi. Instead of speaking for her, which I I love this part, Mm. Silas encourages Epi to respond herself without him weighing in. Which is the exact opposite of what Godfrey did to Nancy. Yeah. A hundred (laughs) percent. Listen, this book, I was thinking about it last night. I'm like, oh, maybe one of the things that we're responding to, it's the same thing we're responding to in Mr. Darcy, the same thing we're responding to with John Thornton, right? Mm. The men who are honorable men, they listen and learn and change their behavior. (laughs) Yeah. That's what like all of these books are about. (laughs) Yeah. It's not wild, groundbreaking stuff. <laughs> no. <laughs> Hundreds of years, women have just been like, hey, it would be great if we could just, like, figure things out from situations. That's it. That's all, that's all it's about. <laughs> so Epi says thanks, but no thanks. She can't leave her father, and she doesn't want to leave the community that she's used to which is precisely what would happen if she were to become a lady. Mm. Epi, Silas, and Nancy are all on the verge of tears, but Godfrey? Well... Godfrey felt an irritation inevitable to almost all of us when we encounter an unexpected obstacle. He had been full of his own penitence and resolution to retrieve his error as far as the time was left to him. He was possessed with all-important feelings that were to lead to a predetermined course of action which he had fixed on as the right, and he was not prepared to enter with lively appreciation into other people's feelings, counteracting with his virtuous resolves. The agitation with which he spoke again was not quite unmixed with anger. Despite agreeing with Nancy that he wouldn't immediately broach the subject with Epi, Godfrey blurts out that he has a natural claim on Epi that must stand before any other. She is his child. Silas, fired up with parental fierceness, asked Godfrey why he didn't claim her 16 years ago, saying, God gave her to me because you turned your back on her and he looks upon her as mine. You've no right to her. When a man turns a blessing from his door, it falls to them as take it in. Godfrey, unqualified by experience to discern the pregnancy of Marna's simple words, felt rather angry again. It seemed to him that the weaver was very selfish, a judgment readily passed by those who have never tested their own power of sacrifice, to oppose what was undoubtedly for Epi's welfare, and he felt himself called upon, for her sake, to assert his authority. Godfrey tells Silas he is standing between Epi and what is best for her out of selfishness and that he must insist on doing his duty. Nancy, though she says nothing, agrees with Godfrey and that Marner is not right to want to retain Epi and is relieved when Marner says he won't stand in their way. It must be Epi's choice. She is steadfast and she refuses them again. When Nancy challenges her, which was surprising to me. Yeah. <laughs> She's so like back and forth in this so set of So back and forth. 
when Nancy challenges her and tells her that it isn't right to turn her back on her father when he opens the door to her, Epi insists that she only has one father, and that father is Silas. And besides, she's already promised to marry a working man, Aaron. She's already moving on with her life. Like, she's got stuff to do. Too little, too late. I really loved that Nancy uses the image of an open door to try and persuade Epi as well, because it really beautifully mirrors um, Epi just walking straight into the cottage. The door mm-hmm. was held open by Silas Marner all those years ago. Mm-hmm. In chapter 20, Nancy and Godfrey walk home in silence. When they do eventually talk, they agree that Epi cannot be made to come to them against her will and that this must be the end of it. They discuss whether Godfrey should publicly own being Epi's father and agree that as clearly nothing is going to change her mind. There's actually no point. Godfrey decides to put it in his will because what he doesn't want is to leave anything to be found out sordidly like the discovery of Duncey in the stone pit. But he cannot bear how much Epi seems to dislike him and he says to Nancy that Epi thinks... I can't. This bit's so funny to me. He, Godfrey says to Nancy, I think that Epi thinks I did wrong by her mother as well as by her and that she thinks I'm worse than I am. <laughs> And I'm like, Godfrey, her mother died in the snow carrying carrying Effie to your dad's house because you wouldn't acknowledge them. Never gonna get it. Just, yeah. <sighs> it's wild. He he can't get it, yeah. There's two more chapters, so like, me, maybe. <laughs> I was still living in hope at this point. So Nancy reassures him that the only trouble in her life would be gone if Godfrey could just be content with her, the life that they have together already and godfrey admits that while it is too late to mend some things that is very much something he can control so that like mm-hmm. a smidgen a smidgen the sap moving Hope. before the bud as yeah as george Eliot might say <laughs> <laughs> yes chapter 21 silas tells epi that for a couple of years now he has wanted to take her to lantern yard and now they got that gold so Let's take, a, let's take a trip. Let's <laughs> take like a trip to my past. Um, so he wants to visit the minister and wants to see if anything has come out in all the years that he's been away that might prove his innocence. Epi is excited at the prospect of going on a trip and seeing something new, but also to have experienced something that Aaron hasn't because she considers him to be so much wiser than her about all things. So she's looking, she's looking for some experience before she gets married. <laughs> Dolly is pleased that Silas wants to make the journey and thinks that he'll be at peace if he can confirm that he's been found innocent. But spoiler alert, that's not meant to be. On their journey, Silas is overwhelmed by the difference that 30 years has had on his native county. He doesn't recognize anything, and eventually Silas realizes that the lantern yard he knew is completely gone, scrubbed out of history, including the chapel, and in its place is now a factory. Nobody, they ask, not even the brush maker who came to the area 10 years before, knew anything about the religious community or Mr. Paston the minister. So they go home, and Silas tells Dolly that Ravelo is his only home now. And he'll never know whether or not he was ever vindicated. And Dolly's like, well, I don't know. Maybe the truth came out. Who knows? At least you have Epi, I I guess. Ki- kind of an odd chapter. We made it. That's the end of the book. No, just kidding. I- <laughs> There's still a conclusion. <laughs> so that's just the conclusion left. It opens with a wedding. There was one time of the year which was held in Ravelot to be especially suitable for a wedding. It was when the great lilacs and laburnums in the old-fashioned gardens showed their golden and purple wealth above the lichen-tinted walls, and when there were calves still young enough to want bucketfuls of fragrant milk. People were not so busy then as they might become when the full cheese-making and the mowing had set in, and besides, it was a time when a light bridal dress could be worn with comfort and seen to advantage. Priscilla and her father drive over to the Red House to visit Nancy, just in time to see the wedding. 
Priscilla does not know that Nancy paid for Eppie's wedding dress and does not know that Godfrey laid on the wedding feast at the rainbow out of a sense of duty to Silas Marner for his brother's crimes and, uh, you know, for being Eppie's dad for (laughs) 18 years and not telling anyone. Priscilla thinks it's a shame that Godfrey is out of town and can't join in the festivities and it's a shame that Nancy never had a nice girl like Eppie to raise as her own. And I thought that whole bit was just so sad. Yeah, it is. The wedding party stopped to say hello to old Mr. Macy, who wasn't able to go to the party because of his rheumatism. And uh, he tells them that he's lived to see his words come true. Silas did get his money back after all. And outside the rainbow, the neighbours that rallied around Silas in the wake of the robbery rally around him again to celebrate the wedding of his daughter and wish him well. Epi, Aaron, Dolly and Silas stop at the stone pits and admire the new garden and the extensive alterations that the kindly landlord Godfrey Cass made to the cottage. All to suit the larger family that will now live there with Aaron moving in. Oh father, said Epi, what a pretty home ours is. I think nobody could be happier than we are. And that's Silas Marner. Lovely stuff. That's it. A lot happens in that last set of chapters there. Yeah. And yet not enough. Not <laughs> like enough. I feel like all of those chapters could be expanded, really. Like, especially Lantern Yard. I was like, whoa, we're going to Lantern Yard now at the end? Okay, George. All right. It's funny that there's a conclusion when everything after the time jump feels like an epilogue. Mm-hmm. A hundred percent. I did really like that there was a lot of mirrored imagery in this set of chapters. So we already touched on Nancy referencing the open door when trying to convince Epi to accept Godfrey's proposal. And Susan Stewart in the essay, Genres of Work, The Folktales and Silas Manor. Essay I've mentioned every week, I'm really sorry. (laughs) Says, uh, links the image of the door to Manor's catalepsy. Catalepsy is associated throughout the novel with the symbolism of thresholds and doorways. Whereas Silas usually closes his door to Ravelo, those occasions when he leaves it open are like openings on infinity. There is an asymmetry to the door, an imbalance between the enclosure of what is inside and the unending expanse of what is outside. As the child enters the door, Silas enters the world. After the spell within which Epi appears, there are no further scenes of catalepsy. Lovely quote. The very last bit from the essay that I will share, uh, obviously you can tell I enjoyed it, weaves together those final fairy tale references. So I couldn't share this before because obviously it's a spoiler for the ending mm. of the book. But mm-hmm. it has often been noted that Silas Manor is a kind of Cinderella story in reverse and that Epi refuses to become a princess. And of course, fairy tale motifs, the two brothers theme, the proximity of the rainbow to the pop gold, the weaving of straw into flax into gold, they're all placed prominently in the text. Yeah. Also, I was thinking about her refusing to become a lady as well and just how that bucks against like other Victorian novels, right? Mm-hmm. Where we have things like North and South and Jane Eyre with everyone becoming surprise heiresses at the end. And yeah, obviously accepting not- that money, like we're just, we're moving away from it. And it's like, there's not even a second where it's like, Godfrey's like, oh, well, I can do something for Aaron to make him, like, maybe he could become a trader or, Mm -hmm. like, set him up in business or something. I don't know. It feels like it feels quite modern in that sense. Yeah. Which I think. Well, Godfrey wants control, right? Like, Mm -hmm. I think if, yeah, if he gets Epi to be his, then she's not going to marry Aaron. She's going to go down whatever path he wants her to go down. He's not going to. Help yeah, her they'll change sort of way. it. Now, thinking of imagery from previous sections of the book, I did like Godfrey's nod to growth and nature while lamenting Epi's refusal of him. He says, <clears throat> There's debts we cannot pay, like money debts, by paying extra for the years that have slipped by. While I've been putting off and putting off, the trees have been growing and it's too late now. Great quote. Yeah. Did that really sink in, Godfrey? I I don't know, but... (laughs) We need another epilogue. (laughs) One of the things that makes me really sad about Godfrey is that while we see through his last conversation with Dolly about Lantern Yard, Silas has grown 
and recognizes his growth and the good fortune that he has, Godfrey just cannot let go of Epi or the claims that he thinks he has on her to the point that like he goes out of town the day that she gets married. Yeah. Like he pays for the food, but he can't be there. Mm-hmm. Which is so passive aggressive. I don't know. <laughs> both both of these men are given the opportunity to improve their lives through the love of another person, but only one of them allows that to really happen. And mm-hmm. I do kind of feel like if we had one more bit of epilogue that we might see that Godfrey actually never finds peace. <laughs> yeah. Like yeah. despite Nancy just giving him opportunity after opportunity, like I don't think there is a happy ending for this character. One of the essays that I read, and I am sorry, I forgot which one it was. Uh, it did say that both Godfrey and Silas develop faith in human love as a universal principle. But I just think that Godfrey still at the end feels like he is owed more. A hundred percent. And I'm and I'm fine with that. Yeah. Because there are people that are always going to feel that way. And that's yeah, I like, don't feel like it's unrealistic. Yeah. The last thing I will say about Godfrey, I, I'll say that maybe he'll come up again. Who knows? Mm. Uh one of the first things that I read while researching for this read-long was the essay that we mentioned in the first episode, The Autobiographical Matrix of Silas Marner, in which Lawrence J. Desner explores the ways that Eliot's own life influenced the writing of Silas Marner. And there is a fairly big chunk of it that I really have been wanting to share for weeks because I think it sheds so much light on why Eliot approached the novel the way she did. So bear with me, because this is, like, great. A big block of text. It's a big block of text that I didn't write, but I think it's really good. Okay? Mm -hmm. An example of the reciprocal tension between text and the author is the question of George Eliot's relationship with George Lewis's boys. But in June of 1860, the question was in doubt, and such doubts are central to Silas Marner. In that novel, a neglected child becomes the ward of a stranger. When the surviving biological and legal parent comes to claim the child at the dramatic climax of the novel, the child strenuously rejects him. The parent, after insisting on his natural claim, soon comes to think his loss part of his rightful punishment for past neglect. The step-parent keeps the child. The natural parent, punished by loss and remorse, retires gracefully. The episode is an imaginative transformation of George Eliot's situation. Silas enacts George Eliot's role. Lewis's male children become Epi. Lewis's wife, in the guise of Epi's mother, dies while her child is an infant. The child, thus abandoned, becomes the means to her new parents' moral regeneration. The death of Agnes Lewis, imaginally projected in the novel, would have permitted her husband to marry George Eliot a marriage which would immediately have solved innumerable social and personal personal difficulties. The imaginative realm permits, even encourages, a kind of speculative play through which the bounds set by moral imperatives can be freely crossed. George Eliot no more harboured consciously murderous intentions. I like that it points it out. Like, by George, the way, she didn't want to kill way, her, guys. She didn't want to kill Agnes. Uh, more than she did towards her brother Isaac, although his death too figured in that of old Dunstan Cass, Godfrey's malicious brother. The novel provides a context which these deaths can be contemplated without remorse and seen as accidental events which make possible the fulfilment and serenity the novel celebrates. If the unconscious, in its animalistic ignorance and immortality, would make murderers of us all, It also has a component that enables us to deflect the impulse into social acceptable channels. The desire to be accepted as a step-parent in the face of potential antagonism from other possible parents, from the general force of public opinion and and from the children themselves, links Silas Marner with George Eliot despite the grotesque disparities between the author and the creation. The accidental, as it were, of the two plots do not preclude abstraction from them of a common node of experience. It is as if the author's feelings were disengaged, disembodied and cast, essentially unchanged, into a new structure of particulars. So this, like, kind of blows the doors off the whole thing for me, and I 
do understand why Elliot is coming at us with so many points of view. And mm-hmm. we've said it before, but it's worth repeating. George Elliot has a lot of feelings. <laughs> a lot. And they are all there on the page. And the other the one thing that I was I'm surprised this paragraph doesn't mention is that George Henry Lewis is also technically he's not the boy's biological father because they're the mm-hmm. children of Agnes Lewis and Thorny Hunt. But George yeah. acknowledged they were his and has raised right. them. So even like she could be writing about George. She could be writing about both Georges, basically. Mm-hmm. Because, yeah. you know, this is a man who took in someone else's child and raised them and protected them from the world by claiming them as his own. So, mm-hmm. I mean, listen, I'm just over here thinking about how a lot of George Eliot's problems would have been solved had Agnes Lewis died, you know? She could have legally married George Lewis. She wouldn't have been an outcast. And um, you're rolling your eyes at me. I get it. But um, I do just kind of want a book that's called How to Kill Your Husband's Wife, The Life and Times of George Eliot. Anyway, anyway, um, I've come to terms with the fact that Elliot sort of filtered her feelings and problems like through this very respectable storytelling lens, I think, I guess. Uh, That's where I'm going to just sort of leave it for now. I'm just saying someone write me that dramatization, okay? Yeah. Someone out there. I think what you want is a really spicy George Elliot biopic. Like a great... Film one. That's why. Put it I on the screen. Put it on the screen, guys. Come on. So speaking of movies, mm. let's let's get into some films. Um, I think the parenting themes that are present in Silas Marner, just one of those things that make the story, you know, so timeless and so easy to adapt, especially as a family drama. <laughs> So let's get into A Simple Twist of Fate. Um, So A Simple Twist of Fate is a modernization of Silas Marner starring Steve Martin, who also wrote the screenplay and produced the movie. Oh, Mm -hmm. Some things are clicking into place for me. Yes. (laughs) So in their review, Variety said that the pairing of Steve Martin and the 19th century novelist George Eliot seems about as likely as an artistic union of Oliver Stone adapting Louisa May Alcott. And um, no variety. (laughs) Actually, not at all. Um, Let me remind you that Steve Martin is also the man that modernized Cyrano de Bergerac in 1987 when he wrote and starred in Roxanne, a very, very popular film. And that was a huge hit for him. And he modernized The Father of the Bride because that's a remake. Yeah. So uh, I, up, updating <laughs> classics, classic. <laughs> this is his thing, actually. <laughs> Cheaper by the Dozen, he updated that one, too. Yeah, this is he his loves thing. a reboot. Seems like, mm-hmm. what are you guys are working on? He and Charlotte Bronte have that in common. <laughs> <laughs> so this film dropped in 1994, and it has a pretty stacked cast, um, yes. including Gabriel Byrne, Laura Linney, Catherine O'Hare, Anne Heche, and Stephen Baldwin. And let me say, this is the only time I'm ever going to say this about Stephen Baldwin. But wow, perfect casting. Have you seen he him was... in Shark in Venice? <laughs> I have not. That's the Missed only that other Steve Baldwin movie I've seen. Perfectly uh, cast well. in both of those, I would say. Well, there is, there is a time and a place for a Stephen Baldwin, this mm. we have learned. Yes. <laughs> he, he really works in this movie. Um, so Martin stars as Michael McCann. We could have kept the names. I don't know why he changed a lot of the names. They could have kept the name Steve Martin. That still would have worked. (laughs) Martin stars as Michael McCann, a high school choral teacher who moves to rural Virginia after he learns that his wife has been cheating on him. And is having a baby with another man, specifically. There he becomes a carpenter collects gold coins, has them stolen, finds a baby. And well, you know, it's just, it's Silas Marner. Mm. (laughs) 
And um, I have to say, I read a lot of reviews for the film and it's often described as a loose adaptation. And the film itself, like, says it's a film suggested by the novelist Mm. George Eliot. But, like, every scene is suggested by George Eliot. This is a pretty (laughs) faithful update. So (laughs) there's nothing loose about it. It's just modernized. Um, I mean, Martin even, like, incorporates quotes, like, into the film. I actually was pretty impressed by some of the work that he was doing in that script, but Hannah, like, why don't you go ahead and hit us with your thoughts before we get into some more? I do not love this film. Mm-hmm. I watched it twice. I actually watched it again today. Okay. Just to, just to remind myself, you know, was I on yeah, yeah. the first time? Um, it's pretty slow. I know it's an adaptation of Silas Marner. So like, it's like 106 minutes. So it's not a long movie. But no, it's... but my God, do you feel all 106 <laughs> minutes of it? Uh, and Steve Martin is doing so much Steve Martining, like the bit mm-hmm. where he tests the temperature of the milk on his wrist. And I was like, mm-hmm. I get it. But is the physical comedy appropriate for this film? Right? It was that. So that bit's a miss for me. The overall translation of Ravelo, so like Ravelo life works. Mm-hmm. I'm not convinced by Lansignard, the affair, like any of right. the pre-Ravelo stuff, but Ravelo becoming small town America makes sense. I think the casting is like the best bit about it, honestly, apart from yeah. Steve Martin. <laughs> right. Who I did not buy as Silas Marner. Um, I thought that Laura Linney as Nancy Lameter, and I know you said his name, but actor blindness, whoever that man was that played American Godfrey, I thought they were so perfect. Because it's not just a modernization, it is shifting from the UK to America. So like you've got mm-hmm. a it's a trans a translation as well. And that that worked. Uh Catherine O'Hare, is that her mm-hmm. name? Yeah, yeah. As Dolly. Great. Love that yeah. they included the sexual tension between the two of them. <laughs> because uh-huh. the novel, it's all there. But I thought they were her- gonna <laughs> Yeah. And then her husband's at the wedding. <laughs> it's like, well, Ben never dies, eh? Yeah. Just hanging around. Yeah. So weird. Really weird. weird. Some of the yeah, some of the things I didn't love were like Silas and S- Silas slash Steve Martin. I'm not going to call him Michael because <laughs> what a stupid name choice. Uh, I th- I thought it was so weird that he's like, oh, my ex partner who cheated on me was going to have a child, and she wanted to call the baby Matilda, which I thought was a terrible name. But now that I have found this child out of nowhere, I'm going to choose the same name. So weird. Not okay. And every time it came, every time he says the name Matilda, I'm just like uncomfortable about that choice. And what it says about him as a man. (laughs) This is me probably reading into this too much. I don't know. I don't know. Steve Martin, please let me know. Hit me up at bonnetsadonna.gmail.com if you are listening. Um, The choice Matilda, I think might be like a Wordsworthian child reference. Oh, I don't know though. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe Steve just... Martin just likes the name and the song "Waltzing Matilda" because they just keep playing it all the way through, and then yeah. it gets stuck yeah. in your head. It's probably not that yeah. deep. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I also, yeah, I also do feel like we just get way too much of Epi. It's a lot of Epi. I needed that time jump. You know, <laughs> I needed it. And like you say, it's not a long film. Um. I think as soon as I had just like made peace in my heart with like, there is a time jump. Elliot does not know how to write about children. She's not mm-hmm. going to, she's going to spare us. And then you watch this and I was like, Steve, I wish, I wish you could have spared us a little bit. Let's make it a <laughs> 90 minute movie. Um, because there's nothing to it. I it's thought all, that's it's why they were dying level. his hair too. Like I mm. thought that they were dying his hair in the beginning blonde so that he could be grey in the second half and then that didn't no, happen. Just, yeah, I just felt like, it, yeah, it was just it was surface level. There's nothing we don't know about. Like I didn't learn anything about parenting that was missing from Silas Marner, the novel. Uh, I The the weather balloon happens. I mean, I don't even lot. know how to ex- I don't even know how to explain it. Did he There's buy a it weather on balloon eBay? That he, like, he is bought, that his? That he gets... Well, he bought it from Catherine O'Hare for $5. But I mean, did Steve Martin oh, did Steve buy Martin. it on 
in Eve. Like, why is it in the film? <laughs> I feel like someone was like, Steve, we need some physical comedy from you. We didn't. Can we? Yeah, we, the story doesn't need it. No. No. So those are my thoughts on, yeah, <laughs> um, <laughs> on that the film. F- the film is really interesting because it's at odds with itself. It doesn't know quite what it wants to be. So, like, I went into this film expecting it to be a loose adaptation mm-hmm. and, like, a family film along the lines of Martin's other works, like Parenthood, Father the Bride, Cheaper by the Dozen. Like, he's got that whole, like, family mm-hmm. comedy thing on lock. And I was really surprised to find that this was a lot more serious, like, totally the shocked. Stuff, the Duncey stuff, the Steve Martin Shark in Venice stuff is, like, it's so dark. It's such a contrast, mm-hmm. those two different movies happening here. Um, in reading reviews for the film, it does look like Martin is shooting his shot with drama. Like, he's like, actually, I want to be taken more seriously. No. Um, it's just not up to the task. And I don't know if that's him or the director, or like the studio. If People were like, yeah, like, we want you to be like fun dad Steve Martin. We don't want you to be like dramatic Steve Martin. So like, can you do a balance of the two? And mm-hmm. then it just comes out half-baked. Not really quite sure. But I mean, I think the problem is, obviously, we've got Martin just giving off his natural dad energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you cannot buy him as a lonely outsider. Like, there's nothing like in the beginning, he's walking past the bar and like everyone's pointing at him like, oh, there he goes. There's that weirdo. And I'm like, he doesn't look any weirder than any, the rest of you. Like, what are you movie. talking about? Yeah, yeah. Just looks like a man walking down the street. Um, and then two, he didn't develop his own character as a screenwriter. There's so no. much of Silas he leaves in the book. And it's so weird because there's so much like good drama that he leaves out of his own character. Yeah. Why? It's mad to me. Like, him being expelled from a religious community, you're telling me that that's not going to translate? Yeah. (laughs) He could be like, he should have been like set up, you know, right? He should have been like, this could have been a redemption tale. He could have been set up for theft in some way. His wife could have left him. Like, all of that could be translated to modern day Mm -hmm. in some way and would explain, like, why he is outcast from his community. But there's none of that. They leave the theft out. Um, His wife cheats on him. And then he just goes into hiding and starts investing in gold. Like, what? (laughs) So They they don't explain it. I didn't get that he was investing. I thought he was just like collecting coins. And I was like, Mm. it's a little on the nose. But I mean, the coin collector, it makes sense. (laughs) Well, they have this whole thing where like he doesn't believe he everyone's talking about how he like just won't go to the bank mm-hmm. and so he's like he everyone's like what a weirdo he won't go to the bank and he just like hoards all of his money um at home in these gold coins and i'm like great now give us a reason he does that something mm-hmm. happened and that's why he does that and also like silas Marnet in the book he has that. There's that whole conversation with Dolly's character. I'm just going to call them the Silas Marner names. Yeah, yeah. Uh, with Dolly Winthrop, where she's like, "Why not silver? Silver's good." And he's like, "No, just it has to be gold." Yeah. And I was like, "That's Why? not. That's not in the book." He loves his guineas. He loves his gold. Yeah. It's money. Lo- it's money. He loves all of it. He's just he hoarding loves money. All of it. But Explore referring to that. it as gold is it's shorthand for right. bags of cash. I think it's also especially baffling because, like, I think that he did a a really thoughtful job with modernizing the other characters in the book. Yeah. Like, the Cass brothers. The Cass brothers is so good. And Nancy. So good. It's their movie. Yeah. Um, Gabriel Byrne is Godfrey. And he is a rich man who is running, at the beginning of the film, he's running his first political campaign. Okay. So. That makes sense. Makes sense. He's totally desperate to distance to distance himself from like his past addictions, Molly, obviously, and his drug addicted brother who's hard up for cash. Like we see Stephen Baldwin first scene just doing scratch offs. You're like, yeah, "Yeah, that's that's Dunstan. So the movie is actually at its best when it's examining power and privilege, which is just, you know, something I was not expecting from that movie poster. Um, There's a couple of scenes that I thought were particularly interesting. And I just wish Steve Martin had, you know, dug into them a little bit more. Um, 
because it's a little underdeveloped. So one happens after Nancy suffered two miscarriages. And then it's revealed that Epi or Matilda is actually, you know, her husband's child. You know the drill. It's Silas Marner. Anyway, Nancy Godfrey and his political advisors hatch this plan to lure Epi away from Silas by giving her a horse and having her spend more time, you know, in their fancy house and grow more accustomed to their lifestyle before telling her that Godfrey is her father. Because, you know, of course, like once she becomes used to all of these material things. Obviously, she's going to, you know, she's going to want Godfrey to be her dad. Um, And then the plan is for them to spin this all into some sort of like Cinderella-esque narrative to the press, because they think that's going to help Godfrey's poll numbers, which I'm not entirely sold on that angle, but I think it's actually a really interesting update of the material. And then there's this other really small scene that I thought was really good. And that was when they eventually take Silas to court for custody, which is, I think, this is why we're keeping Epi small, right? This Mm -hmm. is why we don't have old Epi, because we want this custody battle so they can actually have this, like, debate openly about what it means to be a good parent and money and all that good stuff. And there's this scene with the court reporter and the judge, and they're talking in private. And the court reporter is like, look, it's pretty clear who the good parent is and like where this kid wants to be. Why don't you make a decent ruling for once? And the judge is like, oh, yeah, like the kid should absolutely go to Silas. (laughs) But how am I going to fight the Cass family? Yeah. I can't stand up to them. He's a congressman. His father was also they also imply that his father was very powerful. I'm guessing he was a politician. They're like his grandfather. They've got money. They're keeping certain people in power like So the judge is actually waffling on like what's right versus what will keep him in power. Mm -hmm. And obviously that's not a direct translation from the novel, but I think it does like hold true to the values in the book. And that's something that should be explored. Yeah. So yeah. yeah. And we do, whenever we talk about adaptation, we always talk about like, is it getting to the heart of it versus is it just giving you the scenes that you remember? Right. And I was like, there, that's the movie. That's the movie we want to see. There's a lot of problems otherwise, but <laughs> we definitely that was know good. that just isn't a perfect Silas Mana. I think that's the thing. Mm-mm. No. So this obviously isn't the only Silas Marner adaptation. And we're not going to go into detail on all of them, but Hannah, mm. do you want to just give us like a rose and thorn for each of the other ones that we've seen? So let's start with the 1985 BBC adaptation. Yeah. So when having viewed, I rewatched all of them today as well because I watched them all and oh, I was wow. like, maybe I like this. I just got got up really early and was like, all Silas Marlowe. Um. So I think I might actually prefer a simple twist of fate to the 80s BBC wow. adaptation. <laughs> there is just something about them that I I really I really struggle with them. Everything is like so brown. And the music is mm-hmm. jank, and like everyone's hair is so curly, and everyone who's blonde yeah. is like a very yellow blonde. Well, there's some wigs happening there. It's that just are, I can't. Yeah, I find it really hard. And because they pre, you know, I think the oldest adaptation, it either has to be like nostalgia, nineteen ninety five BBC Pride and Prejudice, because I remember watching it with my mum when I was five. Or black and white, Laurence Olivier, it's the Wild West of adaptations and anything goes. But that kind of like 70s, 80s stuff, I can't. You're not a fan of. I can't do it. Come on, that like um, 80s Pride and Prejudice from BBC. You love them, but I just... Love it! I can't do it. So so my thorn, I guess, is that it's the 80s. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And my rose (laughs) is that... uh, I think Ben Kingsley does a great job as Silas Marner. And like yeah. that casting does make a lot of sense to me. Um, oh, and I have another thorn. Mm-hmm. A rose of many thorns. Um, none of the adaptations have Silas taking Epi back to Lantern Yard. And I think yeah. I was expecting that from this one because it's like the BBC one. Mm-hmm. And something that... I think it's it's actually kind of valuable with adaptations. It does make you realize what your what scenes you're connecting to 
and like mm-hmm. why and what it's telling you about the novel. So when I first read the book, I didn't really care for the journey because it happens so quickly, you don't get a lot of it. But it's such a big lesson for Silas. Like he mm-hmm. wants this closure. He can he will never get it. And he has yeah. to choose, he has to make a choice to move on with his life and to put it behind him. And he does make that choice. And he's spent his whole life not being able to move on from a place and a people that no longer exist. Why didn't Steve Martin put this in a simple twist of fate if he's trying to be a dramatic actor? It makes no sense to me. Yeah. So that, I mean, I mean, yeah. I think it's worth watching. It's an hour and a half, you know, mm-hmm. in and out, get in. It's worth watching totally. all of them, just one after the other, I say. Yeah, just <laughs> make a, a day Sunday. of it. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, I think we're due for another BBC adaptation. 100%. We're available to write it if anyone's interested. Um, I do think the 85 one is is pretty good. There are things mm-hmm. I like. Like It has a spooky vibe to it. Yes. Yeah, it's definitely all of them apart from A Simple Twist of Fate do a much better job with the spookiness. No, sorry, the Wishbone one doesn't. But the <laughs> two of them, 50% of them do a better job. Yeah, the spookiness of it is there with the music and the lighting and like Ben Kingsley is definitely the best part of it. He knows what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, also, sidebar, like so weird that Steve Martin and Ben Kingsley were like <laughs> playing the same role. Like that's like never happened. They're never going out for the same roles. <laughs> that's so funny. Except this one time. Um I think the thorn with this BBC version, kind of to your point about Lantern Yard, is that the story feels very light. It's like Mm. everyone's very capable. Like we've got Jim Broadbent, like we've got Ben Kingsley. So like layer on some stuff for them to do. It's the spark notes. Like the script could have dug a little deeper into the story and even Mm -hmm. expanded it because it's short too, right? Like, I mean, you can get a four part series out of this. We can actually give more to Nancy Lameter. We can give more to Epi because it. I think when you watch it, especially at the end, it's like, oh, Epi's old now. And she's just like, yeah, not going to become a lady. Just marry Aaron. Okay, bye. It just kind of like moves through it so quickly that you do go, oh, wait, I need more from that. I need mm-hmm. more from that story. So, um, so yeah, so yeah, when you're confronted with it on screen, you just see how much Nancy and Epi are kind of given the shaft character-wise. So give us another one, BBC. Go who back, would you, ca- go back who to the would you cast part. in it, though? If it ain't... This it- is tough. <laughs> oh, it's tough stuff. Like, who would you cast? So it was kind of funny because I was thinking about this with a simple twist of fate because I was like, oh man, what actors were around that like could have done the job for a yeah, simple twist of fate. Everyone else is so good. I feel like they got the exact yeah. right cast at that time for everyone else apart from Silas Marner. Like Steve Buscemi, like someone like legitimately <laughs> who is like into playing an outsider. I don't know. Can you imagine if Steve Buscemi Silas Marner? Do you, do you know <laughs> what it, it is? Work. It would work. I think especially at that time I was I couldn't think of anyone. I'm sure there's someone and there's probably like someone screaming someone perfect but it's so hard because i think part of the problem with the simple twist of fate is that it's like an american studio movie right so they're never gonna cast anyone that's like truly Mm. an outsider like they're gonna you're gonna get a box office person to carry the film even though it's not a it's not a role for like a george clooney it's not a role for steve martin it's not a role for yeah i'm interested in listeners feeding in with who would you cast in a BBC or in like a straight adaptation of Silas Marner and who would you cast as Michael McCann in a simple twist of fate yeah. because it's not quite the same thing yeah and for me you need a character actor right like who's a character would your man Sean Bean yeah I can see a, a little Sean Bean but mm-hmm. I feel like, is he too old? I feel like, because Silas Marner yeah. is 30 when it begins. So you need yeah. someone who's like 40, right? Because you need, mm-hmm. I don't know how old Sean Bean is. <laughs> but right, I, also too old, but I see it, Andy Circus. Yeah, because you could CGI him, I guess. So <laughs> he could be any age you want. <laughs> he, he's giving me the energy that I would expect from 
a Silas Marner. Okay. Oh, Michael Sheen. Is he too old? Michael Sheen would do it. I mean, Michael Sheen would work. Yeah. And Andy Serkis could play young Michael Sheen. <laughs> so there's another adaptation. Mm. That you've been the dying Wishbone to talk about. <laughs> adaptation. Yeah. Really giving us a lot of accent work. Oh, and also so um, a clever title. I love the title, which is Golden Retrieved. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Hannah, uh, your rose and thorn for Wishbone. Uh, so the Silas Marner wishbone is the only wishbone I have ever seen. So my rose is that there is a dog playing Silas Marner. That's who I would <laughs> cast, wishbone. Uh, and the he always true, crushes. Truly terrible English accent. My gold. Yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> like, it's it weaves awful. in and out too. Awful. It's uh, it's yeah. very inconsistent. My thorn is all of the stuff with his horrible owner, like Wishbone's owner, buying that that bike. And when little Wishbone's like, I've been eating like moldy bones and budget dog, I've been on rations. And I was like, (laughs) why is this child the only person responsible for this dog? And his mum is like, oh, hey, you know who doesn't look happy? Your dog, who I've been watching you starve so that you can buy this shit bike. Yeah. That's my thorn. Um, Not cool. (laughs) On on Facebook, on Facebook, Lan said that they haven't read Silas Manor since they were in senior, since they were a senior in high school, and have to admit that they didn't like it much. And Wishbone made the story seem far more interesting than it was. So when they finally read it, they felt disappointed, and that probably a lot <laughs> of readers have had that experience. <laughs> and I think it's completely awful to make a child watch a film where a dog plays. Silas Marner, and then expect them <laughs> yeah. to read Silas Marner and not be disappointed. <laughs> um, it doesn't do a great job of capturing the story points. I, I will say no. that too. Like it really was. I think this is one of the, the more tone. confusing wishbones for me. Like I was confused. <laughs> I think it doesn't have like the right humor. Like, let me tell you, the Jane Austen episodes, the Northanger Abbey wishbone is is great. Uh, those really work because you could have a little fun with them. But this one, uh, not so much. I'm going to go with no. But I'm going to say the sets I thought were great. I was like very into the <laughs> sets. <laughs> it also it just I loved caused it. me like a lot of issues because I give Sam a really hard time for some of the stuff that he watches. Same for Jack. And then they were watching me watch Wishbone. And they were mm. like, you can't say anything about what we watch because you've just watched this dog. I mean, George Eliot. I watched it twice in one day because I was like, what is this? <laughs> I've seen it's it three times. It's very fine programming. Now. It's very fine programming. Mm. But I don't think it's Wishbone's best. I'm going to say that much. <laughs> Tough story to adapt. There's a lot of stuff you can't really, you just can't get into. Um, finally. There's another adaptation, I guess, presumably for kids, as it is animated. Mm-hmm. is a It's a thirty minute version of Silas Marner. It's um, it's on YouTube. If you just go, if you just type Silas Marner animated, it pops right up. What did you think of that one? I actually loved this one. I think maybe this is the best adaptation. Maybe. Mm-hmm. So, um, my thorn for this is that straight off the bat they're like he's gone mad because his life was terrible so again we don't get the catalepsy but Mm -hmm. you know it is difficult it's a 30 minute cartoon like how deep are we getting into it but um it's funny because it's such a there are such spooky elements of it Mm -hmm. and yet it doesn't have much of the supernatural reading that you would get yeah. If you included the catalepsy, like if he just falls asleep when the deacon is, um, when the deacon dies or when uh, they come across him in the field, like they have the scene and he's kind of, he is there staring, but it's just read as this man's gone crazy. And I just don't think it yeah. lands in the same way, but great sound, great artwork. <laughs> It's, it's very really, dated, um, but I really liked yeah. it. I would love a graphic novel version of Silas in Marner style. in that style. I thought yeah. I thought Silas looked 10 out of 10. 
Yeah, that. he yeah. looked exactly the way I thought he would. He looks exactly like Ben Kingsley. <laughs> he did. Um, I love that one. The art is great. It is kind of spooky. Like, there's a lot of music, and mm-hmm. there is voiceover. A great, like, just like old school sort of voiceover in that like as well. Like the narrator. The narrator has a great voice. Mm-hmm. Like I'm into it. Um, weirdly, it's kind of uh, silent. Like I don't feel like we have we don't have like a ton of narration. We don't have a ton of dialogue. Like it really is All sort movement, of, uh, which is why I yeah. felt like it was almost like it's almost like sta- static images, mm-hmm. like with like light animate animated bits. Yeah, it's very pared back. I like that it's moody. And spooky and like focuses on the emotions of the story. Yes. But you're right. Yeah, it's 30 minutes. So it's definitely a Cliff Notes version. But it's good if you're like teaching Silas Marner in a classroom, which is what I imagine is it's for. Right. It really Mm -hmm. takes me back to the days when my English teachers used to roll in those like giant AV carts. (laughs) I would stick this on over the Wishbone episode, which is the same length. Yeah. Yeah, yes. totally. Okay, so that does it for this week and for our Silas Marner read-along. That's it. Huge, huge thanks to Katie Mosley for reading excerpts from the novel each week. Thank you, yeah, thank you so Katie. much, Katie. You're amazing. Um, if you have any lingering opinions you want to get off your chest, uh, visit those discussion threads. And all of those links to those articles that we mentioned are still available on our social media. Hannah, where can the good listeners find those? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us at bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. You can join our lively discussion group on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. And you can buy our book, Bonnets at Dawn. No, just kidding. It's called Why She Wrote in English and in Spanish, wherever you get your usual literary fix. Mm-hmm.